Welcome to the Unconventional Dyad Podcast, where psychology and psychoanalysis meet social justice, feminism, politics, climate change, critical theory, graduate student mental health, and the arts. Your hosts are Carly and Laura, two graduate students and friends committed to bridging the gap between the field of psychology, social issues, and society. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unconventional Dyad podcast. Today, we have Rachel Newcomb with us, who is a psychoanalyst, supervisor, and teacher on Orcas Island, and she also teaches in Seattle, Washington. As a teacher, she practices a radical pedagogy and thrives in a room of the disobedient who refuse indoctrination. She learns with and from students who dare to question and make learning their own. One of her favorite classes to teach is The Unconscious Goes to School. In 2018, Rachel received the Distinguished Educator Award from the International Forum for Psychoanalytic Education. Rachel co-leads a writing collective of fellow therapists and analysts who share an interest in writing from the margins and exploring ways creative fiction, poetry, and art can be an aspect of professional writing. The discussion we had today was such a delightful journey, and we really hope you enjoy it. For the love of learning, this episode is dedicated to Brian Tucker. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel. I'm really, really excited to get a chance to speak with you. Oh, good morning, both of you. Before we get started, do you want to share a little bit about yourself? Maybe share parts of your personal and professional identities that might be important for our listeners to know about? Sure. Um, Well, this is just coming to mind right now. So I had a dream last night, and of course, I can't help but wonder if it's related to being excited about being on your podcast. So there were two parts of my dream. The first one was a patient was doing this gorgeous extension on their house, and showing me around and in part of the dream, um, we kiss goodbye passionately. And then the dream jumps to me being lost in New York City. I had to be somewhere. I didn't know where I was supposed to be. But then I end up like on this top floor of like a conference. I don't know people. I sit across from this woman and I look up and Kamala Harris is talking about education. And then I look to the right and it's Hillary Clinton. And I, I said to the woman across from me, what's going on? And she says, it's a conference on education. And then I became obsessed where to get a cup of coffee. And then I got overexcited and thinking, how can I be so lost, but be in this great place? So I'm thinking somehow all of those things are related to the unknown of being here with the two of you today. I don't know if that answers your question, but so... I use, who am I? I'm a psychoanalyst on Orcas Island who used to live in New York City. Um, I love practicing in both places, but the biggest growth for me is what it means to be a psychoanalyst on a small island community. And the things I never in a million years would have wanted to do that have forced me to grow and really change the way I practice um, in being with people every single day that I run into. 
can you talk a little bit about how your work has changed in those two different spaces? It sounds just like an incredible shift. And can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. So in New York, my office was on West 58th Street in Midtown, never ran into anybody, never had to worry um, in my waiting room, would people know each other? If on the rare chance I ran across the street to get a cup of coffee during a break and saw a patient down the street, I would like, oh, there's my patient. What if they saw me? Whereas here the issue is not will I run into a patient, but how many times a day might I run into different people I see and how do I maintain my boundaries? And how do I really have this movable boundary that goes with me everywhere, even when I'm being seen. So it then opens up the question, what does it mean to be seen? So it's really, that is the question I've lived with for 14 years since starting a practice here. What does it mean to be seen? What does it mean to be seen with my daughter? What does it mean to that some of the people I see may have known my partner longer than me? What is it? It just, what does it mean to be seen? So that's the biggest question I live with. What does it mean to be seen at the gym? Uh, You know, half-dressed. It only happened once, but I quickly, you know, all that. What does it mean to be seen running a half marathon when I realize I'm being competitive with my patient? I mean, all, all sorts of things like that. Do you have any stories or experiences where that has really shaped the transference in your work of the patient? Um, Yeah, like, that's a great question. Um, Well, for instance, um, you know, the gym would always, in New York, I think I belonged to the Equinox gym. I'd run on a treadmill, daydream, read articles. And here there's only two little treadmills. The gym's so small. And, you know, in the beginning when I was on the treadmill, And sure enough, I shouldn't say sure enough. Now I say sure enough. Back then, um, a patient gets on the treadmill next to me. And just to nod and, you know, of course, being competitive, I take a quick glance over what level she's on. But to realize we're just two gals running on our treadmills. You know, in a couple days, the person will be in my office. But what is she seeing that I'm somebody who likes to run on a treadmill? And that was really one of the first times that I realized, oh, this is just me running on a treadmill. So does that, is that extra analytic information about her, about me? The answer is yes, but it doesn't really change anything. So that's when it was really an eye opener or I joke around or like the marathon, somebody who's faster than me, somebody who I don't run as fast. Uh, what does it mean? that we're people who like to run, that we all want to do our best. So things like that. Something I've been thinking about more recently is intellectual isolation. I know Laura and I, yeah, Laura and I are in Wisconsin and there isn't a very rich uh, psychoanalytic community here. And something I've been thinking about more is really this this isolation. And I can't imagine what it would be like living on an isolated island with, like yes. you mentioned, 5,000 other folks. And yes. can you talk a little bit about some of I'd that love experience? To, because that has always been and is a rich part of my life in New York City. I was part of a writing group and reading group. Um, 
So I moved here uh, winter solstice of December 2005. I landed on Orcus and um, I too was like, now what? Now who who am I going to study with? Who am I going to read with? Um, so what I did, uh, very old school, I got out this small, slim uh, telephone book and I went to the yellow pages and looked up psychotherapists. And I started writing down their names and their telephone numbers. There were like maybe nine. And a couple days later, it was before Christmas, I started making telephone calls. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm from New York City. I just moved to the island. I have no idea what it's like to practice here. Can I meet you for coffee or um, you could talk to me? Because, you know, this fantasy, nobody knows I'm there. Nobody's, oh, Rachel, nice you know, come, we're doing this, that, or the other thing. So I started going down my list and making calls to these therapists. And the very first person I called was this woman named Gay Williams. She's a Jungian analyst from San Diego. And she invited me into her house and we had tea. And I was there for two hours. We just started talking and I was telling her, all about myself. She was telling me about herself. Um, I make a joke. I knew I wasn't in New York City when she said, oh, excuse me a minute, and went outside and shooed a llama off her front lawn and then came back. <laughs> and then, But so I said, um, I would, you know, just like you said, I said, I really want to be able to be in conversation with other therapists. And I said, would you be interested in starting a reading group? And she was a very soulful person. She thought, she said, you know what? I've been complacent a little too long. I would love to. So she gave me the name of other therapists and I called them. And about three weeks later, um, about four of us started this reading group and it was really rich. So that was in January and Gay and I became very close and we would read in the group. It was just exactly getting to know each other. But the sad and tragic part is that June, so six months later, um, we were just about to read the Freud Jung letters. And I had ordered the books and I was bringing Gay her book. And I said, okay, I'll see you Monday. Well, she was sitting on her front porch. She was feeling a little bit weak and, um, I found out our other friend Janice, who is in the group, well, Gay died that weekend. She had septic shock. And so here I am on a new island, finally connecting. And so it was a real loss. But our writing uh, and reading group did go on and it went on for about 11 years. So how you do it is, and I also tell supervisees, you have to sometimes just reach out and take the risk of somebody saying, oh, I have no interest or taking the risk of somebody in the literature field who might also love psychoanalysis, but just to be proactive about that. Like, or to say like, I would say, oh, Rachel, do you know anybody who lives in Madison or maybe call Jane Gallup or, so you kind of have to create your own community if it's not there. 
That's something that Carly and I, I think, learned this year with the pandemic um, and with this podcast. Yes. You know, prior to this podcast, we weren't really reaching out to a whole lot of people. And then once we started this um, this show, I mean, it just opened the doors to speaking to so many people. Um so yeah, I, I find that really rejuvenating. And, so you're um, doing it naturally, I think, through right. your podcast. Right. Well, and you just had your teacher on that your last episode. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's been really wonderful. And that's been one of the blessings in this horrible pandemic is that we've, you know, kind of reached out to people that we probably wouldn't have reached out to prior because of yeah. the virtual aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, Rachel, if you could talk a little bit about supervision and training. You mentioned that a little bit. I'm wondering what that looks like for you now. Uh Uh-huh. So I graduated my psychoanalytic institute in 1994. Um, When I graduated, my senior, you you know, you have to write a paper consolidating things. And back then, my paper was called Supervision, a Structure to Surrender. Because I, I feel in supervision, the best possible way it works is when the person you're working with feels comfortable enough to tell you the things they're afraid of, to tell you the areas where they feel they screwed up or they're not secure about. So I still supervise. Um, about in 2013, I rented an office one day a week in Seattle. So I would, it was a big schlep, but it was absolutely worth it. Um, And I was part of a teaching group that we called a collective. It was relational um, psychoanalysis and psychotherapy in Seattle. And we were outside the institute model and the um, academic model. And we called ourselves a collective because we got together and we offered courses for the community that weren't about evaluations and it was for the love of learning and it was real rich and it opened the doors for a lot of um, therapists in Seattle. Now they're on doing things, some of them going to psychoanalytic training. Um, So again, for the love of learning, uh, I think sometimes learning that happens outside of an institution can be equally as rich. And actually, I loved the answer. Um, One of you helped me out was asking Vanessa about psychoanalytic training when you were on her podcast. I absolutely loved her answer because like Vanessa, I was in a formal training, but she said something. She said, well, just study, just find people you want to learn from, do all your reading. Um, An institute is one way of learning about psychoanalysis, but there are many ways. And I really love that answer she gave to you too, because I agree with that. If you would like to go to institute training, that's absolutely fabulous. And there are many great institutes, but there are also these wonderful, rich, private ways to learn about psychoanalysis and interdisciplinary, which is what I love too. You kind of touched on this a little bit already, but I'm wondering um, if you can think of what benefits you've noticed in learning outside of an institute. Uh, The first thing that comes to mind is freedom. There's a type of freedom when at the end you're not going to be evaluated. You're not going to, um, is this a good candidate or is this a weak candidate or is this a candidate we're going to reject? 
but there's this type of freedom uh, to really, for the love of learning that can happen um, when you're there because you want to know things and you want to be in conversation with like-minded people. So the biggest area I think is freedom when it's outside the structure. Um, like recent, I don't, have you two ever been to the bookstore um, in San Francisco? Um, the poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti recently died and there's a set um, for the lover of free thinkers. And that's what I think um, happens outside of academics. Always no, it's not like one is good, the other's bad, but I think there's a wild type of freedom that I've always been interested in when the focus is on the student. Also one, I've been thinking and getting ready to talk with you guys. I have been loving learning about learning for so long. And one of the um, first books that turned me on to alternate education was Summer Hill, A Radical Approach to Child Rearing by A.S. Neal. And he his school was in England. And it wasn't until recently that I realized the uh, forward to the book was by Eric Frome. So I think for psychoanalysis to stay alive, and and I absolutely know it will, we have to go back and look how it's being taught. Something that's really resonating with me right now is part of your bio that you sent us, and I would like to read it, and I have it up here because I want to make sure to read it verbatim because I absolutely love it. As a teacher, she practices a radical pedagogy and thrives in a room of the disobedient who refuse indoctrination. She learns with and from students who dare to question and make learning their own. Yeah, I love that. Aww. Can you speak to what was going on in your mind when you wrote that? I, I absolutely love that. Sure, a lot of anxiety. Like, oh my God, is this gonna is this gonna be me again being misquoted? Or oh, there goes Rachel being provocative again. But I really did mean it. Um, just to give you a little backstory, so I graduated undergraduate school. Um, in three years, and not because I was super smart or anything, but all my friends were a year older and they were graduating and I didn't want to be left behind. So I graduated and then went to uh, Teachers College at Columbia to get a master's in education. And uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And there I met a teacher named Maxine Green, who really opened my eyes um, how teaching could be. She has this book, Releasing the Imagination, but she has written so many books. And she, um, we took this class called Arts Education in the Imagination. We read Sula, we read Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man. And she just stood up there and she talked. And I was like, wow, who is this woman? And she changed how I think, again, about freedom and education. But when I was at Teachers College, um, one of somebody I met named Kerry Birch, who was studying history, he was in the class and he wrote several books, but his first was Eros as the Educational Principle of Democracy. And he sent me a copy of his book. Um, well, full disclosure, we dated for a while, but that's you know neither here nor there. But anyhow, in his book, I, he wrote, for the daring young who resist and create. And then when he sent me a copy of his book, we lost touch for a while, he wrote to Rachel, who has always tried to touch what matters, 
love carry. And the reason I say disobedience is because sometimes the so-called acting out student or the one who we might say, oh, that person's problematic, they're, they're always talking this, that, or the other thing, they get written off as opposed to when you enter a classroom, so I'm the teacher now, I'm a teacher and a student, but when I teach, you enter a classroom and anything could happen. So think about our profession. We enter in um, and we don't know what's going to happen. We look around at our classmates who are strangers. Is the teacher going to like this one better? Is, am I going to be smart enough? Will I do well? So Deborah Britzman, another one who has changed how I think about psychoanalysis, she wrote this book, After Education, and she talks about what happens, and there's a German word that Freud used for after education, I wouldn't begin to know how to pronounce, but it means the education that naturally happens when education fails us, and not that failure is a bad thing, but it's an inevitable thing. And that education can go on and on and on. So maybe the disobedient student should not be looked at as, oh, that person is bad, but that person is a type of learner. And that regression, and just like everything that happens in an analysis, happens in the classroom. So why are we shocked when these things do happen? And for me, and this is my bias, why are teachers of psychoanalysis not required to learn about teaching? So somebody who has been a teacher, I get a little like, what? Why do you act just because you're a good analyst means you're a good teacher? Because you might be, but it's not just a given. So I wish there was more emphasis, which Deborah Britzman does. She's at York University. She's head of her department. She went to Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis in Toronto to become an analyst. So she's constantly writing about psychoanalysis and teaching. Um, and I wish there was more of that, more and more of that. Let's look at the analyst who wants to teach. So that's why I wrote that in the bio, because I'm interested in all students, in which is um, I developed this course called The Unconscious Goes to School. And then we went on with a different group of teachers to teach The Unconscious Goes Back to School to really address these kind of things. So that's what I meant by disobedient. It reminds me a lot of my own education. I've shared this before on the podcast, but I was diagnosed with a pretty significant learning disability late, um, late on in my in my academic career. Mm -hmm. And something that I've been thinking a lot about is how that's really relevant. And for me, I learned a ton despite me not being able to retain information. Mm -hmm. I think I picked up on a lot of the latent content that was happening in the classroom, themes. Um, I, I was picking up on things that maybe other people weren't picking up on. So I don't want to make this too psychoanalytic. I don't know if it belongs there, but I was missing the manifest content, but I was picking up on, on a lot of the latent content, the patterns, the themes, um, putting two and two together to help me learn and remember information. I've been thinking a little bit about, about that more recently. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, just that, like, I want to know more. I mean, I'm very interested 
because the manifest is the content as well. It's like when somebody says, oh, this is anecdotal. The anecdotal is the real. It's the meat. So how did you navigate? Like, was there anybody to reach out to help you? Or sometimes you don't even know what's happening and it makes you feel different. Yeah. You know, in pretty early on, I was diagnosed with a reading disability. I did not have a reading disability, but that's what it was labeled. And I couldn't read very well. Um, I listened pretty well, so I was able to pick up on some things, but I wasn't able to read. And actually, uh, into my, I think it was my 10th grade year, my history professor really took me under his wing. And we read the autobiography of Malcolm X together. And he read it out loud to me. And we started to talk about what was the the content within the book, but it really extended much further than that. So he really helped me understand that it's okay that you can't read, but it's really important to be able to listen and to put two and two together in your mind. So that's really how it started. And then once I got to college, I was officially diagnosed with, um, at that time, it wasn't the the DSM-5, I was diagnosed with an information processing disorder, Mm -hmm. um, but both auditory and and visual. So it was kind of a combo. Mm -hmm. But what was your teacher's name? Mr. Tucker, unfortunately, he passed away this past year. And I, it was really hard for me. Um, He actually uh, committed suicide. So it was a really hard a hard loss for for me, but we kept in touch for, um, you know, up until then. So I am so sorry. Mm -hmm. I also want to say I love that you had a Mr. Tucker, because there aren't enough people like him that he would sit and read Malcolm X with you. I mean, what if he didn't do that? I mean, it could have changed the whole course of your whole life. But Mm -hmm. where are the Mr. Tuckers? I am so sorry about that loss. It's it's interesting because I've been reflecting on this more. And, you know, he was the first person who really put college into my mind. It wasn't something that I've considered at that point. I didn't really think that that was an option for me. But he asked me, he's like, have you considered college? And I'm like, no, I haven't. But mm-hmm. he was kind of the one who um, kind of whet my appetite to learning, mm-hmm. despite it happening pretty late mm-hmm. in my high school you know, career. So yeah, we, we need more people like him. And so it's really fun to talk about your passion in learning and in educating because we need more people like that. Well, in Maxine Green for me in graduate school was the first time I didn't feel stupid. Like, oh, right. There can be this whole world with reading Sula by Toni Morrison and that she was the first person who stood up there and just talked well, she just talked. She talked about what she loved about arts. And in a way, through her love of literature, she was saying to us, just find out what you love. Find out what you love. And in a way, my first degree was in curriculum when I was at Columbia. And I love curriculum, absolutely love curriculum, because I do believe no matter where you enter, like do we When you're teaching a course, if you're connected to the material, you can start anywhere, absolutely anywhere, which is why she started with Sula to teach. She loved Sula. She loved Ralph Ellison. So I love that story about your teacher. Do you have any teachers like that? I was 
Yeah, yeah, I do actually. And it's so interesting that we're talking about literature because that I've also shared this on the podcast, but literature was what brought me to psychology in the first place. Um, So my first love is English literature. And I was in an AP English class in high school, where my Mr. Tucker was Mr. Wiswall. He had a PhD in, in English literature. And he was just a really brilliant man. And he did a whole unit on um, psychoanalytic literature, but looking right. at English literature through a psychoanalytic lens. So we learned about Freud and Jung, and that was really my first exposure um, to those ideas. And we analyzed the books we were reading and the plays we were reading through that lens. And that's when I decided I'm going to major in, in psychology and English, possibly do both in, in college. Um, and I did end up doing that. Um, was so yeah, there one really book that you loved? Was there one particular or a couple books that you loved how you delved into it? Yeah, um, East of Eden by John Steinbeck just always is probably one of my most favorite books. Mm-hmm. Um, just the character development and um, the psychological you know, characteristics of all the people in that book, the themes, kind of like Carly was talking about. I really love picking up on themes. Um, so that probably was one of the main ones that I really loved. Mm-hmm. Do you find you still look for literature connections in your psychology, in, in your program? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think I've kind of strayed away from being that disobedient student. I think I probably was that person at some point. And now I've, you know, again, you know, institutions aren't necessarily good or bad, but right. I do think I've lost a little bit of that in being in an institution. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm kind of noticing that the same kind of curiosity or passion isn't really there anymore. I think, mm-hmm. to be quite honest, too, I think I'm just pretty burned out at this point being mm-hmm. in school for so long. I also have a master's in education, so oh. I did that before yeah. I, I I started my doctorate. So mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that once I start internship this year and I take a break from the institutionalized you know, mm-hmm. classroom kind of setting, maybe I'll get back into into that. But no, I haven't. I've kind of lost touch a little bit with that love of literature. Now, did did both of you or one of you go to that talk? Was it on Friday that Eve Watson gave? Um, yeah, I was there. Okay, mm-hmm. which was really good because I kept taking notes, and um, Leon Brenner is that his name? I kept taking notes, and I loved when she kept, and I have had Eve Watson's book and I love Tim Dean and she kept saying queer theory is a one, and I'm thinking literature as well, are the best ways to interrogate psychoanalysis. And I just be, uh, yes, 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 yes. Because psychoanalysis does need to be interrogated. And I think those literature and queer theory are the absolute perfect ways to do it, which is why I all, why is there not more literature in psychoanalytic institutes? Um, So I I like the way those three go together. Can you speak a little bit more to the, the queerness that, that they were talking about? I, I, that also really resonated with me too. And I agree. I think that that's a really great approach to interrogate psychoanalysis. And I find it quite exciting. Uh, can you speak a little bit more to that talk and really what spoke to you? Sure, sure. Um, well, I got Eve Watson's book when it first came out because I'm interested in how we teach a, in psychoanalytic institutes or outside of the institute 
on genders and sexualities. And I, I think there's a huge, there's, there's room for that to expand. And I think there's room for it to expand in terms of an individual's felt experience being what influences what are sexualities, what are genders, as opposed to the other way around. I love psychoanalytic history. I love, and I wish I had years and years and years to be in a really intense Freudian reading group, but I feel that sexuality courses that always begin with the three theories of sexuality is doing our profession a disservice. So um, a couple, this is a roundabout way of answering, but a couple, or last year, it was before the pandemic, um, teaching the course, the the unconscious goes back to school. There was this gal there um, named Barb, and she was teaching, and she's, I think, the head of curriculum at her institute now in Seattle. And I got a text from her or an email from her a couple months ago, Rachel, we're going to be teaching this course in the fall or, yeah, we're in the spring now. I've lost all sense of seasons, but in the fall on genders, on gender and sexuality, would you be interested in co-teaching? So I answered it and without thinking too much, I thought, no, I'm not teaching just a course on gender and sexuality. So I wrote, uh, dear Barb, thanks a whole bunch for thinking of me, but no thanks. And then she wrote back, I don't know if it helps because she knows I live on Orcus, but we're going to be doing it through Zoom. So would you be open to rethinking that? No. So then I thought to myself, this is a topic that I love. I love teaching about queerness. I love teaching about the unknownness of genders and all of that. Why am I saying no? So I thought to myself, um, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write back to Barb and I'm going to say, okay, Barb, here's the scoop. And this is what I did. And I'm paraphrasing myself. I would love to co-teach that course, but I don't want to use psychoanalytic texts or at the most, I only want to use one. So she wrote back and she said, go for it. And I'm like, oh no, now, now I'm really in for it. I'm getting exactly what I want. And she said, I want you to meet Julie, who you're going to be co-teaching the course with, and and, um, and you two see what you could cook up. And I'm thinking, you know, wrongly, oh, this Julie, you know, she's going to be all serious um, and she's not going to be on for it and blah, blah, blah. And about a month ago, I made contact with Julie. Julie introduces herself to me and we start talking and... It's like, who is this person? We're like completely, uh, Julie Hendrickson, we're thinking, oh, I want to do that too. And we just have this conversation. And I said, I think teaching, I think if we teach this course, what if we do a 12-week course? The first six weeks is all literature. And maybe the second part, we could introduce theorists if they connect. And she said, yes. And she's telling me about herself in this book her adolescent is reading called Love is a Revolution and why she loves it. And then I just blurt out, well, what if we started the psychoanalytic course with that book? And she's saying, yes. And then she's saying, what else? And I talked about um, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, the freezer door that just came out. Um, And Matilda, uh, 
is fabulous. Matilda started a series at the Richard Hugo House in Seattle called uh, something like Contagious Conversation, Queer Writers in Conversation that I went to and I was overexcited. Um, and then we were just explosively excited. Um, I see, I feel like infantile when I'm saying this, but we were just ridiculously excited. And then like just thinking of all these all these things that we want to do. So it's that excitement that comes from curriculum when it's from your lived experience. Because one of the things I tell students or supervisees and that um, my colleague, Judy Vida in California, all theory is autobiographical. And I think that that's what students forget when they're in class, whether you're reading Melanie Klein or Winnicott or Freud or Fairbairn, those people came up with their theories based on who they are as human beings, who they are. So we as teachers have um, this, I think, we have to tell students, dig in, embrace who you are, not think that's separate from theory, but the very thing that makes theory. So that is why um, so many of the writers that I identify with and that have moved me and opened me up about education have been queer writers. Um, so that answers, yeah, that's why I think queerness ha can really open up psychoanalytic education. Like Maggie Nelson, um, like just so many people, like Julianne, Weaver, who's a therapist and um, poet in Seattle, who used to live in New York, who has a book of poems called Truth Be Bold. And right on the outset, it says these beautiful poems are about her own experience being HIV positive. And so, yeah, so I have, um, I have a bent, no pun intended, toward queer theory and how that can interrogate psychoanalysis. I think your excitement is a little bit, um, again, I, I'm, I'm picking up on it and I'm starting to get excited too, just talking about this. So despite, you know, that being something of someone's identity and kind of your starting point, I think the importance of education, the importance of supervising, like that, that to some extent, that some of that is contagious. And, and I, I'm picking up on a lot of your excitement too. So well, when I went to that, Richard, my friend, Carol Marshall and I, um, who has been an analyst in Seattle, she lives in Arizona now for some uh, over 50 years, she's in the process of retiring, which is huge. Um, the two of us started this writing collective called Never Underestimate the Power of a Dog's Desire. And we are a group of therapists and analysts who have been there's nine of us, we started out as 10, who have been writing together once a month, three hours for six years. And we have this um, manuscript we're shopping um, of our personal essays. Um, we've had many working titles. Right now, one of them is based on one of the essays and it's called, um, I, I, I Don't Want You to Like Me or something like that. Um, but this is what we have done. We have asked people to dig in deep to themselves 
and see what they like. Oh, I sidetracked myself. So Carol and I one spring went to the opening of Contagious Conversations and Matilda Bernstein was there and um, Anastasia Renee, I, I think Wendy Ortiz. Do you know who Wendy Ortiz is? She's, in, she's a therapist or analyst out in California and she's written several books. One of them was Excavation, which I love. But these writers were reading, not analysts, and I was listening to them and I was getting so excited and that night, um, I walked out. It was a spring night. I was looking for my car. And it was the first time that I had a real sense of what my identity was. And I know identity shift. I don't know if I meant sexual or gender-wise or what I was thinking. But I had the thought, I am a queer psychoanalytic writer. And so something about the queer conversations felt very much alive for me. I don't want to forget about your writing, and I do want to talk about that today. Do you have any preferences of how you want to go about talking about it? You have an incredible story and narrative, and I just I want to hear all of it. But I, I want to leave it to you and how you want to talk about it. Any, any questions? <laughs> I do want to start with one. Um, in 2000, uh, maybe 2000, um, I was going through a hard time. You know, I, uh, I was one of, I was the only person in my class, grad post psychoanalytic supervision class who wasn't chosen to be, um, a supervisor. And I felt my world's ending, why me, blah, blah, blah. I've written about it. Um, I wrote a paper once called Lost and Delirious, the Experiential Flow of Psychoanalytic Training. I wrote about it in a paper called Beyond Redemption. And, you know, there was a whole process. But for me, I thought, oh, my God, everybody in the whole country is going to think I'm a failure. Um, in that spring, I came upon a book that has changed the way I think about writing. And it's called Break Every Rule, Essays on Language, Longing, and Moments of Desire by Carol Masso, who right now is the head of the creative writing department at Brown University. And this was the most beautiful book I ever read. And I thought, this resonates with me. This is how I want my psychoanalytic writing to be. This is how this makes sense to me. And a couple months later, I was um, I was still working at Mount Sinai Hospital, and I was up in the library reading, and I saw on the bulletin board that there was going to be this conference, and it was called something like Women in the Anxiety of Authorship. And at this conference was going to be Carol Masso, Ethel Pearson, um, I hope I pronounce her name right, Anne Royfe. Um, and all these analysts and literature people, authors, talking about their own anxiety of authorship. And when Carol Massa was there, I was just memorized. I went by myself and I thought, here are all these writers and analysts talking about what's important to them, talking about many of them that they didn't have mentors as women and they didn't have mentors. They experienced... Um, men or classmates 
being competitive with this, with each other. Like there's only so much to go around. Like um, somebody talked about, I just got to the top and I'm going to shut the door now because there's not room for all these women. So it was really explosive. So if there's one book that changed the course of my writing and really changed the course of my thinking, it's Carol Masso's. And do you know the writer Lydia Yuknovich? She wrote a book called The Chronology of Water. She, it's interesting, who I absolutely love, talks about how Carol Massa was an influence for her as well. So again, all these people, I mean, obviously Ethel Person um, is an analyst, but she talked about her own struggles too and how few um, people really want to help. And I don't know if you two see that as graduate students, that people want to reach out, that there's enough to go around, that people can celebrate differences. And like, what do you love? What do you love? Where can I introduce you to this person? Who do you want to meet? And um, so Carol Masso is the one that changed me and how I think about my writing. That's for, that's the foundation. So much has built on that. But what are you two thinking? You're nodding. I want to know what you two are thinking. I am really curious how you integrate psychoanalytic thinking into your writing, or if it might go the other way, if you kind of use literature within your psychoanalytic thinking. How do you make sense of that? How do you integrate that together? Great question. I think it's bi-directional. I think everything I read in literature affects how I think about psychoanalysis and everything I think about psychoanalysis, I bring to how I read literature. I, if you love both, I don't, I think they're inseparable because it's not like when I'm home on the weekend, I'm going to turn off. I mean, I'm always a psychoanalyst and I'm always a lover of literature. So one's going to affect the other. So, which is why I would love to see more literature finding its way into psychoanalytic classrooms. There is a podcast that I recommend strongly. It's called um, uh, Commonplace. It's Conversations with Poets. And the poet Rachel Zucker started it. And she, like you two, introduced um, interviews a poet. And I would also download hers. I stumbled upon hers. Once you start loving podcasts, you find one from the other. Rachel Zucker's is my absolute favorite on poetry. And I have met the most interesting poets. And um, one of them, Terrence Hayes, I mean, there are so many, but one person she interviewed was a professor of hers at Yale. Do you know Wayne Kastenbaum? He is at... CUNY, and he's written a ton of books. He's a queer artist and writer and poet and just fabulous human being. And Rachel, to me, has influenced my psychoanalytic thinking through her conversation with poets. Because when you listen to poets talk about their personal struggles, it's not so separate than how psychoanalytic texts talk about wanting to figure out who are we as human beings and poets share the same struggle. What does it mean to be a human being? How do we talk about this? So I think poetry and psychoanalysis are inseparable. 
literature and psychoanalysis are inseparable. So even as I'm talking to you, I'm imagining, oh my God, does my train of thought sound incoherent? To me, it makes sense because it's how my brain works. And I just want to find out, you know, how other people's brain works. Again, if a teacher stood up in front of the classroom to a new group of students and asked one question, what do you love? I mean, and if that's where you could begin learning, what do you love? What do you love? Is It could be a flavor of ice cream. It could be a book you read, but it's got to start. What is an individual's passions? Again, that should not be separate. What is psychoanalytic theory? Yeah, one common thread that keeps sticking out in my mind as you're talking between psychoanalysis, psychology in general, and um, writing or literature is the idea of the narrative. Yes. And, you know, the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves or the stories that we tell about others. And I think I'm finally putting my finger on why literature and psychology are so interesting to me because it's all about narratives and figuring out those narratives. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you a question. Who, what is your sense about who is invited or who gets to tell their narrative? Because who gets to, you know, when you think about our field, who are the gatekeepers of our stories? Who gets excluded from storytelling? What might get missed if a story's never invited to tell? And I was wondering, both of you, you, Laura, do you have any thoughts about that? That's a really wonderful question. Um, yeah, I think it's one that I have to kind of mull over in my mind. But the one thing that comes straight to my mind is just some social justice work that oh. both Carly and I are trying to engage in right now. Um, I've become really interested in social justice over the years and more specifically racial justice, uh-huh. um, I guess, is something that I'm thinking about. Um, I was actually having a conversation the other day with a family member about believing people's stories. So mm-hmm. just because we may not understand what somebody else is going through, you know, if someone's opening up and telling you their story, just believing them that that's their experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess to answer, I don't know if that really answers your question, but mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about, you know, who gets left out. Well, I mean, I think it kind of, we have some choice in that. And those of us who have privilege have some, have some say yes. in that. Yeah. Um, institutions have a say in that. And so I think we all have to be very mindful, especially those of us in positions of power, maybe as a therapist or as a supervisor, as a teacher, um, who we allow to speak up and who we hear um, and who we shut down. And then, you know, this is making me think again of what you said earlier about the disobedient student. Mm -hmm. Why don't we let the disobedient student um, tell their story a little bit oh. more. Why do we shut them down in the classroom? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my mind is going all over the place. Oh, I, I want to know where it's going. No, but I want to know where it's going. I'm so interested. But so, because you two had both Carlos and Tracy on your, and do, you know, they're starting the community psychoanalysis yeah. in New York. And I think that's going, I, contacted them both. I think that's going to be a wonderful thing. But you said the store, what about, so how do we, well, you're doing it through your podcast, 
But in a way, we need to be narrative hunters and look to the margins Mm. about what stories to do more outreach about inviting stories. If we are and find ourselves in the place of privilege, somebody who might not be to really spread. We want stories that people who are on the margins. Um, So in graduate school, would you say that that's something that's encouraged or you talk about social justice work? Like, what does that look like these days? That's to both of you. Yeah, Yeah, Carly, do you want to take this one? I feel like you have better formulated thoughts about this because we talk about this quite a lot. Wait, but I want unformulated thoughts as well. (laughs) I don't want exciting. I think that our institutions have a long way to go. I think that in order to do that, though, I think we need to start pushing the margins on the hierarchy hierarchy within our institutions. Mm-hmm. I, I know for me personally, that's been something I've been thinking a lot about how to do that. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, in the classroom, I feel very much silenced talking about those issues. Some how of my patients are like? silenced. How do you look? So, what is being silenced look like? I'd love to hear that. Something I noticed pretty early on in my work was when I started talking about difficulties patients were experiencing that weren't necessarily psychological ideas, but more societal problems. Those issues aren't, at least in our program, aren't talked about. And I think that's doing very much a disservice to the majority of the patients that we see because I don't. I mean, I could talk about their depression, I could talk about their anxiety, but what are these societal capitalistic issues that are happening in our society that are influencing these people's mm-hmm. livelihoods? Mm-hmm. And to me, that's that's where our work needs to go. We need to start talking about social issues, not from the perspective of psychology, but from actual like social issues. Mm-hmm. And when you, is it discouraged, almost like it's getting in the way of the curriculum? I've experienced it that way. I don't know how it is in other programs, but once you start talking about politics, once you start talking about other issues that are kind of outside of psychology, it, mm-hmm. it you, you find out real fast that you aren't really allowed to talk about that. Hmm. Do you find that as well? I do. I definitely do. Um, I think it's also it's, these are really difficult topics to discuss. And I don't think people know how to navigate that kind of conversation. And it's so much easier to have, you know, a dualistic conversation about something, um, you know, a black and white conversation about something than it is to hear everybody's experiences and try to make sense of all these different puzzle pieces that might not fit together super easily. Um, Carly and I were recently in a virtual kind of um, seminar. And we were talking about race with a bunch of different people um, mm-hmm. at different stages of their professions, you know, uh, licensed people and students. And the one thing that really stuck out to me is that um, the people who were, you know, to speak to Carly's point about hierarchies, the people who were on the lower end of the hierarchy were silent and could not speak until one of the white males with power on that Zoom conference spoke up and invited us to speak because none of us felt, I, at least I didn't feel safe speaking up and sharing my experiences until someone in power um, gave me permission to do so. 
Um, And I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think that's kind of what I've noticed in the classroom is that those of us with less power in the classroom, Mm -hmm. um, you know, often don't feel safe speaking up and we need someone with power to make sure that that safe space is created so that everybody so can the speak person up. with power is the white male teacher yes yeah and yeah. is there something that's put forth or an energy that's put forth do not speak until i call upon you mm. do you think how is that I, like how does that exude that it, right away you intuit that this is not mm-hmm. safe like what well, is the think- energy Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think what happened in that specific example is that all the people with power, mostly the white males, were speaking up. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens right away at the start of the conversation, you know, there really isn't even room verbally to to get a word in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it did almost feel like you guys sit back, the rest of you (sighs) sit back. And when I call on you, and I don't think it was intentional. I just think we were all... um, kind of almost enacting what happens in society, right? Mm -hmm. Like what happens in our greater society, especially right Mm -hmm. now, Mm -hmm. that the people in power speak up first. And Mm -hmm. if there's room for you, or if they want to hear what you have to say, they'll let you know. And that's the only time the rest of you can speak. So as you're saying that, it kind of reminds me, don't you see that at times replicated at psychoanalytic conferences? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. What you're laughing. Tell me what, tell me, um, do you, what is your experience at times at these conferences? One thing that's coming to mind for me is the Division 39 conference that just happened not too long ago. They flipped that right on its head and mm-hmm. they provided spaces for folks. They're like, okay, we do not want to hear from you if you are not a black woman or um, a person of color, like you are not allowed to speak in this space. Mm-hmm. And that to me, I we need more conferences like that. We need more spaces where that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that was really, it was great to witness. It was great to see. It was great to experience. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they did such a great job with that conference. I cannot speak highly enough about the way that they organized that conference. It was amazing. Were you both there? And did you have that experience as well? Absolutely. It was so refreshing. And to be completely honest, that was probably one of my first psychoanalytic conferences that I actually attended. So I don't think I've really gotten the other end of the spectrum. I think I was thrown into a really wonderful um, conference for my first one. I'm glad to hear about that. That was such a good conference. I know a few folks who also went to it. One of the organizations that I think tries to do what you two are talking about that I'm on the board of. It's called the International Forum for Psychoanalytic Education. And um, and you don't have to be a psychoanalyst to be a member. How I'm paraphrasing it, it's anybody with a self-identified interest in psychoanalysis. So it's, it's just wonderfully um, interdisciplinary. And how the conference is set up is there's always equal amount of time for presentation And then for dialogue, because the people who are going to dialogue with the presenter, when the two of those things can um, intermingle, anything, again, can happen. And um, there's a podcast um, 
that a Seattle therapist, John Totten, started. Do you know his Between Us podcast? Well, John's latest um, has Brian and Medria. It's a two-part episode, and both of them are presented at the IFP conference. Um, And they they wrote this paper and it's fabulous. So they're talking about issues of social justice. They're talking about um, what doesn't get addressed in classrooms. They're talking about reparations. So I think uh, Medri and Brian are two voices that are just exploding on how we need to think about things. And that's their curve. And so I'd love for you to also check out um, IFP's uh, website and what our conferences has been about. There have been themes like unsilencing. Um, we've had Alison Bechdel, do you know her work? Uh, Are You My Mother? Um, and she won the Hans Lowald Award one year. We've had Jungian analysts. We have Judith Fiores. So that's something we wanted to. What are the voices? that might not be heard that we need to make room for. I'm glad that you two had a good experience at that conference because more need to be like that. And what the yeah, teacher and- might unwittingly do that maybe a student needs to point out to the teacher. Like did that person standing up there or does a person realize that they are by their behaviors or just assumptions silencing somebody but what were you going to say Carly yeah I was just going to say you know to sum up a lot of what we're talking about what really comes to mind is sometimes white people just kind of have to stay quiet and shut up that's really what needs to happen and listen Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean I think listening is is sometimes the best the best way to go Mm -hmm. and sometimes we just have to know when to keep our mouths shut what about you Laura what were you thinking Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, And I've been thinking a lot about assumptions lately and just my own assumptions about other people Mm -hmm. and um, more specifically in personal relationships. I tend to think that I know people that I'm close to very well already. So I jump to conclusions when they say something. And I had this experience recently where I was um, texting with um, someone I'm very close to and I realized that I was completely off base in terms of what I thought they were saying to me and I think that's something I need to practice is not to jump to conclusions and not make assumptions even when the person in front of me is somebody that I think I know very well mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah I, I just think that's an, an important skill to have in um, just in broader society in general, because we tend to assume things about people that we think we know or groups of people that we think we know. Um, mm-hmm. So I agree with Carly. And to be and to be asked or to have that um, essence that you can disrupt me or you can ask if you think I'm getting it wrong. And that confrontation doesn't have to be this scary thing, but really with the word to confront something does not have to be bad. It can be an opening. And just because you feel some discomfort doesn't mean that something bad happened. One thing I just want to point, um, when the two of you had Carlos on the second time and he was talking about empathy, I found myself being overexcited because my friend Larry Green and I have conversations about empathy 
And it was the first time I heard, and I think it relates to social justice. It's the first time I heard somebody besides my friend Larry and myself um, talk about it in a way that we do, because we met each other at the an IFP conference, and we were very cautious with one another. Oh, do you know so and so? Do you? And we brought up a person, and we were both very polite. And not till later on did we admit we both had the same feelings. But one of the things, and then we went on to make each other shirts that say "Just Say No to Empathy." And so when I, but here's the reason why well, something my supervisor said to me my second year of analytic training. She was a self psychologist, and everybody was talking about empathy and. Um, sort of a Heinz Kohut kind of way. Not that that's a bad thing, but it is a type of way. And Dorothy said to me, empathy is not a verb. It is not something one does. She felt empathy is can be a byproduct of what a person feels when they are understood. And to me, that has stayed deep within me, within my psychoanalytic training. It's not like Carla said, saying, oh, that must have been so hard for you or blah, blah, blah. I loved, I was so excited listening to him. But if somebody is attuned to you, if you as the analyst are working from your own experience, no matter what topic, and then using that to listen to another person, my hunch is that they are going to be attended to because that's what you're doing. And when somebody is attended to and knows that you're following them with your experience, I think that that can have at times a result of feeling that feeling of empathy. Wow, this whole being was listening to me, not imagining what my experience might be like, but oh, I, I feel understood. So I just wanted to share that, that your podcast in that conversation with Carlos was very exciting for me. And that's a gift that you two give, you know, how we're all going to listen to them. Oh, one of the, yeah, yeah, please, please do. I want to say that um, two different people, Kathy Fish, who taught, teaches online class about flash, flash fiction has changed how. I think about writing. And then I know you two, I think, are on Twitter. I'm part of this group for the last four years, hashtag VSS365, where we write a, a story every single day based on a prompt word. And it's an it's unconscious. You're not supposed to edit too much, just what comes to mind. So those two are another way that literature helps. I just needed to get that out there. And we definitely have that in the episode notes so people okay, can have access you. to that as well. Good. Yeah. Any last thoughts or questions? I do have one last question for you, if that's okay. I, I'm wondering, th this last year has been incredibly challenging in so many different ways. I'm wondering if you can reflect back over the last year and think about something that you've really learned and how you imagine implementing it or utilizing what you've learned going forward. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, it has been an unbelievable year. Um, 
I have had big changes in that I talked about my Seattle practice and here on our small island in Washington, they asked, please no unnecessary travel. So I had to give up my office in Seattle and I see my Seattle patients through Zoom. So that whole world of Seattle changed and my connections I had down there. I had another office um, briefly in another island, Friday Harbor, which I also had to give up. I think what's changed, and I, I think what's changed is um, for me what comes to mind right now: listening to people's varying levels of discomfort about how the pandemic has affected them, and respecting it, even amongst us who are therapists. I mean, I, in my office, separated furniture so it was six feet apart, and I bought a HEPA filter and had windows, and I saw people with masks, because it's not like in Manhattan where people are going to be riding up on an elevator. Um, So I was able to see them, but I know I talked with my other colleague on another island. I felt such shame, like people were going to say I'm doing something wrong, but I wasn't. So just how we all, when we're afraid, have the tendency to be judgmental. So I think just having um, this delicate appreciation that every one of us, especially as professionals, maneuvered what felt comfortable to us. Even now I have colleagues who are thinking about going back to their practices, um, but are afraid of being judged. So I've done Zoom, I've done telephone, I've done in person. Um, and it's, I, I think the one thing is being really how it's changed is having a deeper appreciation when it all comes down to living and dying We have different ways of existing with that question. And we have to be careful, but I don't think there's outside of doing what the guidelines are and knowing we're staying safe. Everybody has a personal relationship to what it means to live and die. And just what I would hope would be a a broader appreciation how we navigate it. It might change from day to day, but just that when faced with that, you know, we're all going to walk through it differently. Thank you for sharing that. That, that, That's really resonating with me, uh, what what you just shared. Tell me. Yeah, I think the pandemic has elicited so much fear in people. And I have experienced it. I know that other people have also experienced it. And fear looks differently for a lot of people. And really being able to begin to understand that fear Mm -hmm. and that people deal with it in a lot of different ways. Do either of you, because I absolutely agree with you, Carly, do you, either of you, you or Laura, have a sense um, of why we are so quick to judge how other people are handling fear. And I'm opening up that question to myself too with you as I ask it, because there is a lot of judgment. I actually judged my, one of my sisters at the beginning of the pandemic because she was handling and dealing with the pandemic differently than I was. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know. I don't know why I was so quick to judge her. Um, she was a little more lax with her rules. She was still careful, but she had kind of like a a pod of people, two or three other people that she spent time with. And I immediately, my visceral reaction was, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. You should be, you know, isolating. Um, and honestly, I mean, when I think about that specific instance, I think I was afraid that she was going to get sick and she doesn't uh-huh. live by me. And, you know, I, my mind immediately went to what would happen if she ended up in the hospital, she's going to be alone and there's no family to help her. Um, so when it comes to people I care about, I think a lot of times I tend to judge them quickly because I'm afraid of losing them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When it comes to strangers, I don't have a very good answer for that because mm-hmm. I don't know them personally, but I still immediately jump to, oh, they're doing this wrong. Or right. why is their mask off of their nose? Right, right. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. I can be like that too. What about you, Carly? I might have to come back to this one. I think that our experiences, going back to narrative again, I think yes. that our experiences really shape how we deal with fear. Yeah. I don't have a good answer for why I'm quick to judge. I think for me, I I came from a biological sciences background. I was actually doing a PhD in um, evolutionary and ecology or evolutionary biology and ecology. So I I've run enough simulations to know what a pandemic looks like. So Mm -hmm. for me, I knew what that could look like. And I think that's why I was really scared. (laughs) Um, But I don't have a good answer yet. I I will have to get back to you. I, I, I will think about it, though. I think that's a really important question. When you were just talking and it said biology, it reminded me um, maybe about seven years ago, this reading group I'm talking about on Orcus, we read a book called Contagious by Priscilla (laughs) Wald. And that book just uh, was so moving to me about what it means to be the one who is contagious so I re-remembered that book during the pandemic, and I was telling so many people, you have to read Priscilla's book, because I think she talks about um, contagious as a verb, as a state of being, mm-hmm. and uh, you know whether we, f- we fear contagion during a pandemic, or we fear contagion when somebody thinks differently than us, and uh, what it means to be the contagious one. that might be a good place to to end I think that's I'm gonna have a lot to think about after this episode it's Mm -hmm. been quite delightful and I'm so thankful that you were able to spend some time with us and be flexible also with your time because I know that we also had to change the the date so I do appreciate you you. thank you and um I'm sure it'll be ongoing and I'm going to continue to listen to your podcasts But thank you both and um, loved what you both say about narratives, because in a sense, when you think about it, all we have are narratives, so the different ways to make them uh, be part of everybody's existence. So thank you guys. Okay. Take good care. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. I wanted to take this time to put in a plug for the music that you hear in our episodes. So this is all done by Laura, the other co-host for this podcast. And she might be a little upset that I'm putting in this plug, but too bad, Laura. I want people to hear it and I want people to know that it's you. So take a look at her music. You can actually find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. And I hope you enjoy it.